So there's an old Peanuts cartoon by Charles Schultz that I've shared with you before, but it's worth seeing again. In the cartoon, Linus and Lucy are staring out a window at this torrential downpour, and the rain is coming down hard, and Lucy, the ever-present crabby cynic and the resident know-it-all, for once, she actually seems concerned and actually seems to not know something. And so it goes like this. Lucy is looking concerned out the window, and she says, boy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? And Linus says, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again, and the sign of the promise is the rainbow. And Lucy, now smiling, says, you've taken a great load off my mind. And Linus says, sound theology has a way of doing that. There's something about getting your theological bearings in the middle of a storm that has a way of settling you. There's something about getting your theological bearings that has a way of calming you. You can take great loads off your mind by getting your mind on God. Knowing the Bible and what it teaches about God can take a great load off your mind. And that's what we want to do today. We want to look at the Bible, we want to look at God's Word, and we want to see what it teaches us about God and what it teaches us about ourselves, and then hopefully we will have some loads lifted. How about that? Do you have any heavy loads weighing on your mind that you need lifted today? Any burdens that you need lifted off of you? That's what I'm praying happens today as we look at Mark chapter 12. So turn there in your Bibles now. And one load that I'm sure we all need to be lifted off of us from time to time is this. We don't have to be fake. We don't have to fake a smile. We don't have to fake Christianity. We can be real. We want you to come here and say, I don't want to be here. We would rather you do that than come and fake it. We want you to be real here, to openly and honestly confess like Michael did at the beginning, just confessing his frustration with his children. We want you to come here and do that. The good news of the gospel is we don't have to be fake. We don't have to pretend. We can actually be real with Jesus. We don't have to fake it. We don't have to pretend that we're something that we're not. Whew. We don't have to try to keep up appearances. We can be real. And that's what Jesus wants for us. The real Jesus wants the real you. He wants you to keep it real with him. No pretense, no pageantry, just you. Messy, sinful, stressed out you. I don't know about you, but that takes a great load off of my mind. Now, let's look at the real Jesus in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. Hear the word of the Lord. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? 
and the great throng heard him gladly. So Jesus is teaching at the temple, and he wants to know something. Why do the scribes say that the Messiah, the Christ, is the son of or the descendant of David? Why do the teachers of the law believe that the Messiah is just a normal human being, a normal human descendant of David, just a chip off the old block? Why do they think that the Messiah will only be a human descendant of David? And so that's the question that Jesus raises here. And to answer his own question, Jesus appeals to Psalm 110. Now, in its original context, Psalm 110 is a royal coronation psalm. It was a song that would be sung any time a new king was crowned in Israel. And in Psalm 110, we have Yahweh, the Lord, speaking to a human king who has just been crowned the new king of Israel. And in this case, it's King David. But there's more to this psalm than just Yahweh talking to David. And that's what Jesus is getting at here in Mark 12. In Psalm 110, David isn't just singing a song at his coronation. He's actually predicting the coming Messiah. And that's why this psalm is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's quoted or alluded to at least 33 times. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled this psalm. Because Psalm 110 is all about Jesus. And so David is speaking, but he's speaking about a future time when the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, would be ruling and reigning at God's right hand until his enemies were put under his feet. David is actually speaking of Jesus here, the eternal Son of God. In fact, what we actually have in Psalm 110 is God the Father speaking to his son Jesus, saying basically, Jesus, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's what's really happening in Psalm 110. That's why the psalm says, my Lord said to my Lord. In other words, God said to Jesus. God said to the Messiah. And so that's what's happening in Psalm 110. We have the real Son of God reigning on His throne. The real King is being addressed in Psalm 110. And that real King's name is Jesus. And Mark wants you to know that the real Jesus wants the real you. The real Jesus is reigning on God's throne right now. And He could come back at any minute. He might by the end before this sermon's over. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? And when He does... All of his enemies will be put under his feet. They will bow their knee to him, the real king. And when he comes again, he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And any chance to repent and be reconciled to him will be over. And so if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, turn from living for you and turn to him. And then you will really begin to live. Trust in what Jesus has done for sinners through his life, death, and resurrection in order to reconcile us to God. This is the real Jesus. He's the Psalm 110 Lord. He's God's anointed son, the king. And he will squash all of his enemies when he returns and they will be thrown into everlasting fire. That's something to avoid. Understand this. The real Jesus is not a pansy. The real Jesus is not a pushover. 
The real Jesus does not have nice feathered hair and soft, creamy hands that smell like strawberry lotion. The real Jesus is the most powerful king that has ever been. He can take you out today and throw you into hell. Nobody else can do that. Yes, he is merciful. He is compassionate. He is gentle. He is kind. And his kindness toward you is meant to draw you to repentance, to turn from living for you and to live for him. But make no mistake about it. He is the anointed son of God who is reigning right now and he will come again, perhaps today, and he will usher in his kingdom. And if you don't know the real Jesus, today would be a great day for you to bow your knee to the real king. And when you do, then you'll discover just how loving and kind and merciful and generous and caring He really is. The real Jesus is really merciful to real sinners. And that's why I love him so much. And I hope you come to love him too, perhaps even before this sermon is over. The real Jesus wants the real you. He wants to welcome you into his family. He's crazy good to people like us. He welcomes people like us into his presence. If you don't know that about us here at Grace, we're sinners. We really mess up sometimes. We really do. I do. As a pastor of this church, I really blow it sometimes more than I want to. And yet, God is still quite fond of me. Some of you aren't yet, but God is. Don't you want to be on God's team? And yet God is quite fond of me in spite of the fact that I'm selfish and I say and do stupid things. He's still quite fond of me. Can you believe that? And God is still quite fond of us. Wouldn't it be great if you belong to a God like that? You can belong to him if you're willing to bow your knee to the real king And if you're willing to get real with the real Jesus and to fess up to your sins and to open the empty hands of faith, wouldn't it be great if you belonged to a God like that? I think so. And so here's Jesus' point about Psalm 110. If God is speaking to the Messiah, then obviously the Messiah is superior to King David, and therefore he's not merely a human descendant of David, which is what everyone was expecting. He is God. He's not just David's son, he's God's son, God's eternal son. If David calls the Messiah Lord, then how can the Messiah be just one of David's great, 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 however many greats gets you their grandson? The Messiah can't just be David's son because he is actually God's son. And so by bringing this up, Jesus totally flunked the scribes on their Messiah exam. He's telling the crowd that the smartest guys in Israel, the guys who have their PhD in the Old Testament, the scribes, they actually have no idea what they are talking about. And continuing with what we saw last week where Jesus played Bible trivia with three groups, this game of Bible trivia ends and the score is now Jesus 4 Religious leaders, zero. That's the score now. 
four to zero. And then next week in chapter 13, we'll see that this game will really be a blowout because Jesus is going to predict the desolation of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And he's going to say, when you see the abomination of desolation in 70 AD, you're going to know that this religious system is over with. It'll be five to zero then, and Jesus will make it a blowout. That's for next week. So that's the score at this point, four to zero. And when the crowd heard Jesus' little sermon on Psalm 110, they marveled. They all subscribed to his podcast. They all started following him on Instagram. Mark says in verse 37, they heard him gladly. But Jesus is not done with his teaching series on the scribes yet. He's got one more sermon left in his series. One more bus to throw the scribes under. Jesus is going to totally expose the scribes, expose their heart, and expose just how deeply insecure that they really were. So look now at verse 36. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So the scribes would walk around like know-it-alls. They had all the right answers. If you had a problem in your life or if you had a question, they always had the answer. If you had a question about the Bible, they had the answer. They were always right. They always chimed in. And they would parade around the temple in these long robes, strutting like a theological peacock. They certainly would never admit that they messed up. They had their act together. The scribes were like Lucy Van Pelt from the Peanuts cartoon. Here's Lucy. She could set up a booth at the temple and be right at home with the scribes. The scribes were always ready to give their opinion, just like Lucy. The scribes were always ready to give their thought for the day, just like Lucy. The scribes were always ready to dispense sound advice, just like Lucy. But the scribes were so insecure. Oh, how insecure they were. They would go to the marketplace and they would wait with bated breath to be recognized. Just hope somebody notices me. They lived on, they feasted on the praise of man. They desperately needed the attention of others. They would die a thousand deaths if they went unnoticed. They lived for the praise of men. And Jesus tells us they always had to have the best seats in the house. They had to be noticed. They lived to be retweeted on Twitter. They loved and they lived to see those little red hearts on social media. And they preyed on widows and took advantage of them. They loved being needed by others. They lived to be needed by other people. They needed to be needed by other people. And Jesus tells us that in prayer meetings, they were the ones who would go on and on and on with all these big theological words in these long prayers. But Jesus tells us it was all for show. Mark says in verse 40, it was all for a pretense. They prayed and they prayed. They prayed on widows and they prayed these long drawn out prayers that were not coming from a heart that loved God. It was all done on the stage of their lives. 
But if you could peer behind the curtain like Jesus does here, if you could peek behind the curtain, if you could see what they were like backstage, then it was a totally different picture. All that they did was for a show. It was all done for attention. It wasn't real. It was pride. That's how the scribes functioned. It was all about them. They lacked humility and they couldn't even see it. And that's how pride works. It blinds. Prideful people are actually blind to their pride. And it's really sad. Pride will blind you and you can't even see how prideful you are. Everyone else can see it a mile away, but you or me, if we're prideful, we're blind to it. That's how the scribes were. They had no idea how full of themselves they were. They were clueless to how arrogant and prideful they were. The scribes lacked the one thing that a person in their position, with all of their exposure to God's word, should have had in abundance. Humility. They should have been the most humble people because they, more than any others in Israel, they actually had access to God's word, the Old Testament. People didn't have copies of God's word back then. You had to go to the temple, you had to go to the synagogue, and you had to hear somebody else read it. And so the scribes of all people should have been oozing with humility because they alone had access to God's word. Tim Keller says, If we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. The truly gospel humble person is a self-forgetful person whose ego just, is just like his or her toes. It just works. It does not draw attention to itself. The toes just work. The ego just works. Neither draws attention to itself. And isn't that good? Isn't that freeing? Let's be a church whose egos are like toes. They just work. They're just there, not drawing attention to themselves. But that is exactly the opposite of what the scribes were known for. The scribes couldn't stop talking about how great they were. They were not like inconspicuous toes. Rather, they strutted through the marketplaces and the temple like proud theological peacocks. They lacked humility and they connected everything to themselves. Ministry was connected to them, not to God. Everything was connected to them. Everything was about them. But true gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself, not needing to connect ministry with myself. Not making everything, including ministry, about me. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation, every everything with me. 
So what we want to do here at Grace is we want to create a culture like this, a church culture where we don't connect every experience with us, where we are totally interested in other people, a church culture where we hold our preferences loosely, where humility grows and then spreads and spreads. That's the kind of church culture which causes growth and true gospel-centered disciples. So in order to do our tagline well, making disciple, making disciples, in order to do that well, we have to create and cultivate a church culture where humility is everywhere, where humility is our knee-jerk reaction to everything that happens and everyone that we encounter. Now, imagine what that kind of church culture is like, where we all hold our preferences loosely, it's like we hold our, our preferences like trying to hold mercury in your hand. You ever try to do that? It's just going everywhere. Where we hold our preferences loosely. They'll just slip through our fingers like mercury. Where humility is common. Who doesn't want to be in that kind of environment? That's what the church is supposed to be known for. Duh, right? Let's be one of those churches like, you know, we know that, but we're actually going to make that happen here by God's grace. And I think that by God's grace, he has been doing this work in our hearts as the good news of his son has changed us and is changing us. I think we're seeing the spirit of God cultivate gospel humility here at Grace. I really do. And what a great church environment to raise your kids in, right? Humility. Who doesn't want more of that? Who doesn't want more of that for their kids? Who hates humility? You know who hates humility? The devil. He does. He doesn't want that stuff spreading here. But it is spreading here because we're keeping Jesus front and center here at Grace. And when you keep Jesus front and center at a church, you can't help but be real. You can't help but be honest and transparent. Why? Because you can't fool Jesus. And when he's front and center... There ain't no getting stuff by him. Just like the scribes here in Mark 12, their fakeness did not get past Jesus. Their pretense was on display. Their spirituality was a sham. It was all a show. It wasn't real. And that's why Jesus says they will receive the greater condemnation because they had God's word. And ultimately, I think he's, he's ultimately the condemnation of uh, separation from God if they don't repent and turn to Jesus as the Messiah. But I think he has in mind here the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem that's coming in 70 AD. That greater condemnation is on its way if they don't repent. They will receive the greater condemnation because they had God's word in their hands and yet it didn't change their hearts. Their spirituality was a sham. It was just pageantry. But Jesus doesn't play like that. Mark is telling us here that the real Jesus wants the real you. He wants the real me. The real Jesus wants the real you. He doesn't want the Instagram you. I'm sorry. Jesus doesn't care if you have 42,000 followers or if you have that little blue check next to your name. He wants the real you, not the picture-perfect shot of you and your coffee and your avocado toast that you slept a silver tone filter on to get that perfect look. Jesus can see through all of that. 
There's no filter that you and I can slap on our hearts that will impress Jesus. And so Jesus likes the hashtag, hashtag no filter. He likes that one because he likes the real you and the real me. No filter. The real Jesus wants your heart. He wants your heart more than you and I want red hearts on our social media. And the real Jesus wants you to come messy. Come with messed up hair and morning breath and looking like you're paying the high cost of low living. Jesus knows the real you and he still loves you. I mentioned this last week, but it's worth repeating again. Jesus knows your heart better than you and Jesus will not be fooled by your self-diagnosis. He sees everything in our hearts and he still loves us. Incredible. He sees everything in our hearts and he still loves us it's incredible jesus wants the real you not the instagram you and he wants you to get real with him to come with all of your drama and all of your mess and all of your issues and all of your baggage he prefers dealing with people who have issues and can own up to their issues Paul Miller says this, the criteria for coming to Jesus is weariness. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with your wandering mind. Come messy. Don't try to get the prayer right. Just tell God where you are and what's on your mind. That's what little children do. Tell him where you are weary. If you don't begin with where you are, then where you are will sneak in the back door. Your mind will wander to where you are weary. The very things we try to get rid of, our weariness, our distractedness, our messiness, are what get us in the front door. That's how the gospel works. That's how prayer works. So instead of being paralyzed by who you are, begin with who you are. That's how the gospel works. God begins with you. It's a little scary because you are messed up. God would much rather deal with the real thing Jesus said that he came for sinners, for messed up people who keep messing up. Come dirty. Jesus wants us to come messy and dirty like pig pen from Peanuts. Here's a pig pen strip by Charles Schultz. He's pig pen's running in the rain and the rain washes all the dirt and the grime and the filth away and then pig pen says, rats. In one minute, the rain has washed away what took me all day to accomplish. That's us when we come to Jesus. It's how he wants us to come, covered with all the dirt and filth and grime that we have accumulated in our lives. And so let me ask you this morning, are you more like Lucy Van Pelt or are you more like Pigpen? Lucy would fit in with the scribes. She's a fuss-budget, crabby, self-righteous, bossy, and opinionated little girl. Or... Are you like pig pen, messy, dirty, real? Jesus prefers pig pens. He'll take a Lucy if she's willing to own up to her sin. But the preferred peanuts character type that Jesus is looking for are people who are like pig pen who know that they are dirty, who know that they have issues, who know they need a savior. And they accept that truth. People who give everything that they have 
to Jesus. Just like the widow that Jesus was watching when the offering plate was passed at church. Look at verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This widow stands in contrast with the pageantry and the fanfare of the scribes. This poor widow gave all that she had, which was very little. In contrast to her small sum, many people were giving large amounts, and yet Jesus says she's the one who gave more. Now, how does this math work out? Jesus' numbers are off a little, right? I mean, do you want Jesus doing your church budget? What do you mean this lady gave more than they gave? Jesus does math differently than us. He can see into the heart, and he knew that this woman, though she only gave two pennies, still gave more than all the others combined. She gave everything she had, Mark tells us. And that means she is trusting God with her future, which at this point involves no money. Her future involves being broke and very dependent on and very desperate for God. She's trusting God with her future. She was giving from her heart, a heart that loved and was grateful to the Lord. Her heart was the issue, not her wallet, not her purse. And Jesus knew that this woman, though she only gave two pennies, still gave more than all the others combined. How does Jesus know? Because only Jesus can see the heart. He can see the motive behind everything that we do. He can see behind the curtain. He can see the backstage of our hearts. He can see motive. He can see desire. He can see everything on the inside. And he is inviting each one of us to come and to open up our hearts to him. Getting real with the real Jesus is fueled by humility, which is what the real scribes lacked. The widow shows us humility because she gave all she had and then she trusted that God would provide. That's humility. My life I place in your hands, Jesus. I'm desperate now and I need you. So this call to get real with the real Jesus is a call to humility, a call to simply pour your heart out to him today, to give him everything, everything that's going on in your mind and in your heart, in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, to everything that's going on in your life, just to give it to him, like this widow. Give him your pain, give him your sorrow, give him your fears, give him your heart. It's a call to be real, to tell him what's weighing you down. It's a call to give him your heart, to cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Maybe you've been like Pigpen and you've been living it up in the world and 
you are dirty and you are filthy and grimy and you just want to be clean today. You can be today. You can have your sins forgiven. You can be clean. That feeling of just feeling dirty all the time, that nagging shame that you just can't seem to shake, Jesus can take care of that for you. What's taking you your whole life to accumulate all the shame, all the guilt, Jesus can wash it all away in an instant. You just open the empty hands of faith and pour out your heart. Jesus died for all the Lucy Van Pelts who don't know their sin, who think they are good, like the scribes. And Jesus died for the pig pens of this world who know their sin. He'll have both. All you have to do is come with the empty hands of faith. So come to Jesus today. Whatever it is that's weighing you down, bring it to Jesus. Bring the real you and bring all your issues. Bring all your baggage. The real Jesus wants the real you. We began with a Charles Schultz cartoon and looked at a few along the way, so I thought we'd close out with a few quotes that I ran across this week from another Charles, the late British preacher Charles Spurgeon. These quotes helped recalibrate my unsteady heart this week, and I pray that they will do that for you too. I pray that they will help take great loads off of your mind today. I pray they help you to get real with the real Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, Cast the burden of the present, the sin of the past, and the fear of the future upon the Lord, who forsaketh not his saints. Maybe you need that today. God took care of this widow when she gave everything that she had, and he'll take care of you. Cast the burden of the sin of your past on him. The sins of your past that you just can't seem to shake. Let go of them. And your fear about the future. But what's going to happen? Give it to Jesus. He already knows. You don't. He does. You can trust him. He's the only person that knows what your future is like. I think it's safe to put it all in his hands. He will never leave you or forsake you. The burden of today What's weighing on your heart right now? Give it to him. Spurgeon also said, It is folly to think the Lord provides grace for every trouble but the one you are in today. You are not in a unique situation that there is no grace for. You're not experiencing something that no other human being has ever experienced and God's scratching his head and thinking, Do we have grace for this? Can we, Jesus, can we handle this? You're not in a unique situation that there is no grace for. Whatever situation you find yourself in, there is grace for that. Trust him. You can trust him. As Spurgeon says, remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. If there were a better place for you to be, Divine love would place you there. Trust him and serve him where you are now. And if there's a better situation, he will open the door when appropriate and according to his wisdom. Be like the widow. Just give your all now. Lastly, Spurgeon said this, the tender heart of Jesus 
waits to hear our griefs, let us pour them into his patient ear. So let me ask you this morning, what griefs do you need to pour into Jesus' ear this morning? What's weighing down on your heart right now? The good news of the gospel is that the tender ear of Jesus is waiting. He reminded me of that this morning when I woke up. And I was tired today. And I was like, oh, I'm tired, Jesus. And it was like this thought came into my head, knowing I was going to read through my sermon manuscript. It was just a thought as if he were saying to me, I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting for you to dump all your troubles into my patient ear because I'm tenderhearted. And then I was like, I kind of want to pray now. The tender heart of Jesus is waiting for you. So go ahead, pour all of your troubles, no matter how big or how small, into the patient ear of Jesus. He'll listen to you. He'll wait. You can just go on and on. He'll listen. The scribes, Mark tells us, prayed these long prayers for Joe, for, for show, and Jesus had no patience for it. But Jesus has invited you to get real with him and to just pour your heart out because he's listening. And so let's do that now. Let's pour our griefs into the patient ear of our tender-hearted Savior. That's the real Jesus. Tender-hearted. I pray that's the picture we leave with of him stamped on our minds today. We serve a tender-hearted Savior. Let's talk to him now. Jesus, thank you that you love us, that you know everything about us. You know what's behind the curtain in our hearts. You know what happens backstage, and yet you still love us. And you know the burdens that we're carrying today, many of us are keeping us from sleeping and eating and functioning. And you know our future. Help us to trust you. Help us to believe that you're tender-hearted and you have our best interest in mind along with your glory. And those things will come together. We ask that you would help create gospel humility here at Grace. It would continue the work that you have done. You've done that, Jesus, here. I've seen it and I continue to see it. We pray that you would continue to cultivate a culture of humility here at Grace so that we hold our preferences loosely and we love other people and that you are glorified. Do that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.